welcome to the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. I'm really excited to welcome um, KCRW DJ, but you're more than, uh, you know, I feel I feel silly to say KCRW DJ, but that's how I know you or how I found out about you. Um, but KCRW DJ Aaron Bird is in the studio this week. So first of all, I'm really excited that you made it to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, most of the people I've interviewed starting out, I've sort of had a relationship with to some degree. Um, I interviewed Joey Peters, who's the drummer from Grantley Buffalo. And, you know, we'd met like just a couple times through actually Chris Doritas. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Sharp is a DJ in LA. I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. And although we had never met, well, I saw him, I saw him perform a couple weeks before, but I became friends with his girlfriend, who's a yoga teacher. So the reason why I'm bringing all this up is I knew eventually I would be interviewing somebody that I don't really have a relationship with or a prior relationship with. Um, And so here we are. And so, because I knew I couldn't sustain a podcast for a year, two, three years and just only interview people that I know. Um, So ultimately, um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is I want to tell the story about, first of all, we're, you know, we're going to talk about music, DJing, and then obviously social media and our culture. I think I probably want to start with that. But I want to just sort of bring up a story that I'm thinking about and then why you're here. So I listen to KCRW not as regularly as I used to, but I still typically listen to Morning Becomes Eclectic. Um, because as a DJ, it's, it's sort of an avenue where I could become familiar with some new music. And I remember... The music was just different that morning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this actually feels eclectic. And I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into, you know, KCRW um, in the sense that I just, I don't know the programming and, and sort of their intentions, but I do remember really responding to, you know, Liza Richardson and Chris Doritas years ago when I first came out to LA. It was such a big deal. Um, and so you were on that morning, and I didn't know it was you, but I, I was instantly drawn to what was being played. And one of my friends had come into work, and she was like, oh my God, are you listening to KCRW? This guy, Aaron Bird's DJing. It's freaking really, it's like, this is, this is the shit. <laughs> and so I started, you know, checking you out and researching you online. And, and I, you know, and I even remember that day I tweeted at you and like, you need to get a full-time gig. I think I, I said something like, you need to be the full-time DJ for Morning Becomes Eclectic. Um, and so time had passed, and then the podcast sort of started, and I started thinking about people that I thought were um, relevant. And so I sent you an email, and I don't remember what I said, but mm-hmm. I must have said something. And I'm curious, what did I say in the email that made you think, huh, I don't know this guy. Um, there's probably a shitload of podcasts out there. <laughs> what did I say that resonated with you and you thought, huh, I'm going to come on the show and talk to this guy? Mm, um, to be completely honest, I don't remember exactly what you said yeah. in the email. But what I will say, I feel like what I remember about the email is... um you presented yourself in the podcast with a sense of humility. That's something I really resonate with. Um, I think that it's missing way too much in the world. And so without 
remembering remembering or recalling any specific words or phrases or sure. anything you said i just remember a sense a feeling a sense of humility and yeah. so th- that's that's why i responded yeah well i i think i reached out to you because i thought we would have a few things in common just you know music but i thought being a dj in la and and i think at one of the premier radio stations not only in la but probably the country is that is that fair to say yeah i mean most people consider kcrw the best station in the country and it's considered i I suppose it depends on who you ask um but anywhere in the top three in the world actually so yeah i would i would definitely say so i think if for people that don't know you i think that makes the most sense to sort of start here um again, with the intentions of getting into social media. And there's a sort of a big story happening right now um, in Covington, the Covington High School, which I think really is relating to my negative attitude towards social media. Um, so I, I want to get into that. But I want to just, for, for a lot of you that don't know, um, KCRW is an NPR radio station in Los Angeles. Um, but they're sort of known as curating and sort of having their pulse on a lot of not only just music but just culturally um especially in LA. Yeah, I mean, I guess to further contextualize it, uh it's a uh unique radio station for many reasons, but probably the most uh unique aspect is that it's a really niche type of programming where half of the day it's news, talk, cultural programming of sorts and then the other half of the day is music. Uh most stations are either one or the other. Um, so we have this this unique duality. Um, in addition to that, uh, uh, the the legacy of the station. Um, you you mentioned Chris Doritas. I don't mm-hmm. know if you knew this about him, but he he broke uh, the Chili Peppers. Beck um, Adele made her radio uh, debut, um, at least U.S. radio debut sure. at KCRW. Um, I personally myself broke Little Dragon, Hiatus Coyote, Anderson Pack. Uh, so we have a long, long history of breaking artists and acts that go on to, you know, um, incredible heights and stature. Um, not every artist, obviously. Sure. Uh, but but yeah, we have a long history. And um, again, Mr. Doritas, one more time, he has played a big role in shaping um KCRW into a station that's known without throughout the entertainment industry as being the station that has um you know a finger on the pulse. Yeah. We 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 tend to um excavate and discover exposed talent before the wave is crests, you know? How much freedom do you have to play what you want? We have a tremendous amount of freedom. Okay. Yeah, I mean um as long as you abide by basically FCC rules, nobody sure. really tells you what to play. Okay. Um, now, with that in mind, obviously, as is the case with any any sort of system or structure, um, being like the record industry. Uh, well, not necessarily. I mean, yes, that is a system and a structure, but just more specifically in terms of. Um, let's say for instance, you are on, so we have a rotating DJ show, for instance, that's Mm -hmm. on technically it's Saturday mornings from 3am to 6am. Right. So at that hour, at least terrestrially speaking, meaning locally in terms of, of, um, how, 
how wide the the radio signal reaches. It's three to six a.m. in the morning. You can be weird and freakish and whatnot. However, if you want to kind of move up and um, fill in or eventually get a higher pro- uh, profile sure. time slot, then there is sort of a, a understood, like a unspoken kind of understood game of sorts, if that sure. makes sense. Um, and so, w- with with that with that in mind, you can understand is like no, no one's really telling you what to play. But you have a a map and a guideline as to perhaps what may help your efforts yeah. to get to those higher profile time slots. I sure. don't know if that's I'm trying to I'm trying to be specific about something that's also very general. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, occasionally I'll hear songs that you, you just are, I hear on every show, or like the mm-hmm. new Hoja record. Yeah, uh, recently, and you know, I hear it a lot. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I know in like the big time. This isn't supposed to be like an investigative report on radio stations, but I do no. know, like with K Rocks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. There was the history of uh, a lot of payola going on and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I get the sense that. Um, you know, you guys primarily, I mean, I'm sure record labels are probably reaching out to you guys trying to pitch you to play stuff, but I'm sure. Oh, without a doubt. Okay, yeah. so I mean, that obviously goes on, and they know the impact of your station. Yeah, but not payola in the sense of, like, because payola hints the word. Like, right. people are literally being paid to do it. That doesn't happen. But you guys are obviously, I mean, people are, record labels or managers, I'm sure, sending you stuff to play. I mean, obviously, it makes sense. Oh, yeah, but that, I mean, that, yeah. That's, that goes on that's everywhere. Been, yeah, that's, yeah, that goes on everywhere. That's been happening since the dawn of time. Cool. Um, where, as the dawn of radio time. Um, but I think from an outside listener's perspective, which I once was, mm-hmm. and still am, even though I'm a DJ there, sure. like, I'm still a huge, huge fan of KCRW. It's all pretty much all I listen to on the radio. Yeah. But, um, it isn't until you're on the other side when you get a better sense and understanding of programming and why it is important to play some play some acts and songs um, multiple times. Right. And one of the main reasons being is though you and I may listen to radio a little bit differently, most for most people it's a passerby experience. Yeah, that's true. So so for instance, I've been on air for over eleven years. There are still people that will hear me. You may have been one. Yeah. That heard me on Morning Becomes Eclectic and will either claim or on a conscious level will say that's the first time they've ever heard me. Yeah. I feel that Morning Becomes Eclectic dozens and dozens of times, but I just happen to catch you in the right moment, the right yes. day for something to click and then it become a, a sense of recognition. So imagine that let's say a three hour program, like morning becomes eclectic where you can play upwards of like 50 to 60 songs, right? You know? So if it's a passerby experience, even though if you're a religious intensive, intensive listener to KCRW, as by the way, many people would claim to be including the same people that will hear me for the first time in 11 years, you know? So that's part of the reason and calculus behind playing multiple songs. Um, over the course of several days. Well, does that like frustrate you that people are, I mean, do you do anything like promote your show or, or, um, I mean, does that frustrate you that people, you know, unless they don't know, they just found out about you yet. You've been a part of KCW for a while or no. Yeah. No. I mean, I, no, does it frustrate me? Okay. I mean, yeah, it's not, we're talking as much as I love music and I love what I do and I love DJing. Like I have the most 
proper and and therefore what I would say is healthy perspective on it. Great. No, I'm just playing songs yeah. and music. Like it's not. Yeah. I did want to ask you something. You know, I want to ask you a couple of things about DJing, and then, um, you know, when I DJ and when you DJ in public, you're you're in you're reading a room. You're in the room. You should in, be. In, yeah. I mean, that's to me. I think that's. Everybody's talking about mixing and, and this and that, but I think, from my perspective, the, the reason why I've been able to get gigs is because I think I'm pretty good at reading a room. And you have that energy, and you, you know that you're feeding, you're feeling off of each other. But when you're in a studio DJing, how do you, how do you create that? Because you're in a room with maybe the producer, a couple other people. You don't, you know, people are maybe driving or at work. So how do you know? What are you feeling? What? How do you know what to play? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, especially um, being a DJ in a more traditional form and for clubs and parties and things like that. Um, I I literally just play music that I love. And to, and to, in terms of um, and, and I also I also play music and choose music that I hope expands a certain box that a lot of people will be inclined to put me in. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, it's, it's sort of a, a long, full answer. So I'm just going to kind of spew it out. Sure. So, so, um, one thing that I have discovered and learned in radio is if there's something that you think is incredibly obscure or super weird, because you as a actual living, breathing human being, if you like it, you probably represent a hundred thousand fold of people that do. Hmm. And that's one thing that you tend to discover with radio. And there's been times and instances where I've had a set or I've played a song and I'm like, oh, I bet people aren't going to be expecting that. And most instances, those are the tracks and songs people resonate with the most or yeah. I get the most, uh, you know, feedback from or comments um made uh from that from those choices another sort of aspect to your answer is it goes back to the genesis of my beginning at kcrw so i started there and the only reason why i'm there is because of garth trinidad and when he started training me on how to be a dj and on-air personality broadcaster in that sense I remember he said, um, and this will make perfect sense if if anyone has ever heard Garth on radio. Mm -hmm. He said, you have to be natural at acting natural. (laughs) And and one one tip he gave me in order to execute that, he said, man, just think of think of it like you're sitting across. There's a girl that you're into that you're sitting across from. And he was like, you're not talking to L.A. You're not talking to a car full of people, you're talking to one person. Hmm. So I say all, all those things to contextualize. I play music that I love for me. And I know if I love it, there are many, many other people that will as well. And I imagine just playing a, playing a set and, and, uh, or a song or a series of songs for one person. Hmm. Um, I also know generally speaking because i have a late night show it's it's midnight to three on thursday nights and hell if i didn't have a show i'd be asleep um right. but 
it's funny. Uh, there's a, a few other DJs at the at the station. Um, they're in different. Some of them are different time slots now, but uh, we all kind of start at the same time on the midnight lineup. And one thing we would say for years and still continue to say is like, yeah, we might be on midnight to three in L.A., but guess what? We're prime time in London. We're prime time mm. in Japan. Oh, that's a great one. Uh, we're about. prime time in Australia. Um, and with internet, it doesn't matter what time. I mean, terrestrial radio is over. There's no, as far as forms of entertainment are concerned, there's nothing that's destination anymore. Right. You can consume it at any point in time. And in fact, the bulk of my audience listens back to my show. They don't listen to me live. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I do my entire show on the fly on top of that, too. So I might gather and put together a gigantic playlist. Right. But I also treat my show similar to a DJ reading the room. Now, in this case, I'm not reading a room. And I know this is part of why you asked that question. But what you do find as a DJ for folks who are listening that aren't DJs is sometimes you're playing a song. And then all of a sudden there's something about the 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 feeling of the room with the composition and instrumentation, how people seem to be affected by it and or it sparks and inspires a thought of like, oh, you know what? Actually, this will go really well after this. Right. And so I do that all the time, too. Yeah. All the time. My entire show is on the fly. OK, so even even when morning becomes eclectic. So even when you're in the studio, not like out DJing, it's it's pretty much on the fly. It's, it's a, yeah, it's on wow. the fly. I, so I'll have a playlist that I've compiled typically. um so my general routine is sometime in the afternoon on Thursday. So this is what I'm going. This is going to be my routine tomorrow mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. Um, I will start going through music that I've been sent from um, for the week, meaning since the last time I was on air and um, last time during my show. I have you know some kind of go to blogs that I always find good stuff on. And so I'll I'll sort of have this playlist in which most of the music during my show is sourced from, but mm-hmm. not exclusively and not always. Okay. Yeah. I remember you playing a <clears throat> um this amazing remix of Ramble On. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. I, I don't remember, but I I found it on SoundCloud. I remember yeah. tweeting at you. I'm like, what the hell is this? Because I think <laughs> at the time I, I didn't hear what you said. Mm. And and you sent you sent it to me and and I, and I just I played it like that night because I think you were DJing on on KCRW on Friday and I ended up playing it at seventy seven um, that night and I just I, I started my set with that song I was just blown away by it um, one other question only because I'm a huge fan of Anderson Pack um, and actually I just saw I went to the Stevie Wonder show at the Staples Center. Um, the, where he, it's, it was like the, the pledge drive or the toy drive he, or something. Yeah, he does and an annual toy exactly. giveaway thing. So I mm-hmm. went there. Um, I'm just a big fan of Anderson. I know he's from, I think he's from Oxnard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, when you say break him, can you tell a little bit of story about, you know, how you met him or, or how how you discovered his music and how you decided to play it on the air? Or do you remember? Or Yeah, I, it, it's just simply being a part of the music community in L.A. Yeah, no crazy story. But did you, um, how did you find out about him? It was a musician friend of mine that um, still to this day is a, his keyboardist. He also happens to be Snoop's keyboardist and, and uh, he's played with Jay-Z and stuff. This this guy plays with everybody. Um, but locally, he's been playing with Anderson for, I think, I want to say 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Anderson was going by Breezy Lovejoy. 
Okay. And um and his music was all right. It was all right, but you you could at least in my opinion, I think you could always tell that he had something. Like he was he was an entertainer. <laughs> yes. Um and and sometimes Sometimes the entertainment has to catch up with the music. Sometimes the music has to catch up with the entertainer. And in my opinion, that's what happened. It was the latter. The music right. caught up with the entertainer. Um, and because he used to be, he, he was like a, he didn't even, he wasn't even his own drummer like he is now. Right. Um, he was a session drummer and a drummer in bands and things like that. In fact, I was shocked when I found out that he was a drummer because I only saw him as a front man. Right. And to see like, he can Yo, play. He kills oh, the kid, man. He can play. It's yeah, ridiculous. Um, and and this was years ago. I mean, it's 2019 now. Um, I'm trying to think of when that may have been. I want to say it was probably around 20 2009, 2010, maybe yeah. maybe as late as 2011. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. And then I had a um, he is one and only i think radio performance on kcrw was uh about three years ago mm-hmm. so and uh and i had the pleasure of interviewing That's him on right. there which I remember that which was really cool because um knowing him and seeing where where he's where he's gone how much he's grown um it was it was nice to be um a, a part of what i think will be will would be considered perhaps will be considered a hallmark moment at the station yeah because he's you know, the star just keeps rising with that guy. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I forget, some huge producer produced this latest record. Was it Dre? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he, he worked with several, uh, producers, but Dre, I believe both mixed and, or at least engineered it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's got, it's got a, I mean, song wise, I like the previous record more. Uh, but sonically, it's, it's got a, yeah. it's just, it's like reached another, place yeah i mean dre is a pretty impressive producer no doubt but what most people and you'll hear this and this has been said for probably 30 plus years in reference to dre quite specifically his true genius is in engineering hmm. well i i could tell yeah I, it was it's one of the better sounding records i've heard in a long time yeah. and that's that's engineering that's engineering yeah picking exactly. the right mics where to place them and yeah mm-hmm Um, I want to, I'm just, it's something that I've been thinking about because you're a DJ, so um, I want to get your take on music now and this, and this, and I'll, I, I could, you may completely disagree with me, so whatever, it's fine. Obviously it's fine. I had a podcast maybe a few months ago where I was talking about Cardi B and I was also talking about how outside of the 90s hip hop craze or or um, era and then grunge in the 90s i don't know if that's ever going to happen again where sort of a i mean i feel like reggaeton right now is actually you know all these dj's like dylan francis and then jay balvin and cardi b and and even like the latest um song with bad bunny and um I don't like I don't like Drake. Drake not Drake. yeah Drake. It's got this reggaeton thing, and that's sort of taking over the culture a little bit. 
But I don't think because of social media, because of people being all about their image and their brand and like experiencing a a culture, a scene, that's, I think that's the word I'm looking for scene. I I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. Uh, well, you know, nobody knows, sure. but, but what, what but you I hear what, what I'm getting at totally. Yeah. And, and I agree 100% because even though no one knows, um, if past is prelude, what we have seen is happening is there's just been an acceleration of like consume and move on. Um, there I are talk things about that all the time. Yeah. So there, there are things, um, I saw, I'm a big sports fan, a big, big LA Lakers fan. Me too. I'm and from I, Cleveland. So LeBron, obviously, yeah. being, I was, if he couldn't play in Cleveland, I'm happy that he's here. Nice. Nice. <laughs> right. Um, and congratulations on the, on the, on the championship. Hey man, that, that was one of the best days of my life. I swear <laughs> to God, when Kyrie Irving made that shot and LeBron blocked uh, Iguodala, I, I swear, to, I literally <laughs> cried. My dad and I, I, I was watching it here. I get it. I, I swear to God, <laughs> I cried. I it was it. one of the greatest days of my life when I they won it. that championship. And, and you know, there, <laughs> I, I, you know, just in case there's some, there's some women listening and, um, you know, sports, Obviously, women consume uh, are entertained by sports, but it's it's primarily sort of like a man's domain in terms of like consuming the entertainment aspect sure. of it. And one of the reasons why I don't even know if men really realize this, but one of the reasons why we have such an affinity and connection to it is because it's the only realm in society with which we are uh, with with which um, it's acceptable for us to be emotional. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's the only realm in society where it's like completely it's excusable. Okay to like it's yell not, and scream. You yeah, right. cry and like be, yeah, yeah. And and be fanatical, like literally yeah, fanatical, definitely. you know? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, to- I totally get yes. Yeah, you crying for something like that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know, I remember the question I asked you, but there's something I want to say about sports that will re- get back to me bringing up the, um, the scene. One of my friends never understood sports, like why people would get into it. And I said this thing, I responded to her this way. I said, and music has the same thing, which will ultimately lead to music. Sports has this way of bringing people from all different walks of life together for one common goal, victory. And it's a beautiful thing. Music, though, I think takes it to a deeper place because I remember going to Pearl Jam at um, the sports arena a few years ago and talk about a guy who can like literally carry you all on his back into the ocean or go anywhere. I mean, Eddie Vedder is, there's not many people like, you know, Bono is is similar to that. Um, I was just, I'm getting chills because I will never forget. There was a moment where, this guy was sort of being an asshole towards the front of the of the mosh pit or something, and he, while singing, was Eddie was you know controlling the scene off the stage while controlling the band. I mean, it's it's a power to be able to control emotionally carry a room of twenty thousand people, and I guess miraculously this comes back to my original point. 
you know, I, I grew up listening to Eddie Vedder and, and Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and Soundgarden. And, and when Chris Cornell killed himself, and there was just this benefit show at the Forum just a week ago, I'm, again, I'm getting emotional because I just remember how powerful that music was. And this goes back to my original question. I can't believe this comes back to it, but talking about scenes. And, you know, Seattle was such a scene and the scene of New York and L.A. and hip hop. And, you know, is that possible that it's ever going to happen again? And I think it takes a culture. I mean, maybe we're ripe for it because of what's going on right now culturally with, you know, politics. Maybe, but but people are so stuck on their phones and, and their image that can we care about it like we used to in the 90s? So, well, the, yeah, part of the, 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 I shouldn't say part of the reason, the reason why I brought up sports is because I had recently just watched an interview with Kobe hmm. and, um, and, uh, the interviewer asked him, you know, could you imagine, um, you know, what was happening with you and Shaq, uh, at this era with all social media and stuff like that? He was like, yeah, I could imagine it. He's like, but what you have to forget is at that time, Stories lingered. They had lives. I talk about they that like all the lasted time. long time. Yes. So things such as a scene or a story doesn't last long these no. days. So even though no one knows if that could ever happen again, if past is prelude, it seems as though not only will it not happen again, but even the the lifespan of the quote unquote scenes that happen now are the acceleration of the decline of the length of those those scenes it seems to be increasing you know I, I mean that is that is one of my main points we are not capable and i think the media is also perpetuating it we can't absorb anything anymore and and because they're looking for that next thing and and so and i'll bring this back to the music and then we'll talk culturally you know cardi b to me in this weird way sort of represents our culture um and I just found it interesting. There are two women, and I, I researched this you know, a couple months ago, um, that have, I think the, the statistic is two or three number one hits on their debut record, females. Cardi B was the second. The first was Lauryn Hill. And, you know, Lauryn Hill obviously has been in the news years ago about, you know, other personal stuff that obviously, I mean, maybe, maybe Cardi B. So my, I guess my point, though, is, is that, I don't. I read an article in the New York Times a while ago about Cardi B's manager or marketing person or something saw something in her and thought that they could create what we have now. And I feel as though she represents the cultural shift of the craft of songwriting, getting a good voice, although she's probably surrounded herself with incredible producers and. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a fan, you know, I certainly play, you know, Dylan Francis did a, did a, um, a remix of, I like it that I play a lot that, and anytime I play her, um, actually this latest song money, I think it's called or something. I, it's not too bad. And I, I, I don't mind playing it, but, um, and even similarly to Drake, I feel I'm not a big Drake fan, but I think somehow he got involved with you know, television and he got involved. I, I just feel like we're in a culture now where it's not about the talent. It's about creating a persona or getting attention or creating a marketing plan that 
somehow sticks out from the constant onslaught of information that we're getting fed. And those people somehow rise above the top and the talent is sort of secondary. I'm not, I haven't asked you a question yet, but obviously I've said a lot. So what is you, what is your thought? Um, I agree. The only part I would disagree is that it's now, I think that's been happening for a long time. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, yeah. I mean, I think about Kiss, you know, obviously, you know, it, it could be argued if they're a great band, but obviously they had an image um, that was completely over the top. I feel like, though, now it's just more rampant or more. Um, well, of, of course, it's more rampant because um, the ability for people to access and or create content is more rapid than it's ever been. Right. You know, there was a time when it was difficult. I mean, think about your setup right here. Like how how relatively simple it was to get all of this equipment. Yes. There was a time where that wasn't all that easy. No. And even if you could get it, your ability to send it out and have a medium to share it with a lot of other people that I mean, this is the this is really the first time in human history that this has ever existed, you know. And this is, I, I think, this kind of generally applies to every to to the general consensus of of what what you're referring to. My best friend and I we talk about it all the time is like the biggest problem with the amount of information that we receive is that we're inundated with with like so quickly. And and with such a large abundance and amount that if you didn't, I kind of feel like we, we my best friend and I, we kind of talk about is like we kind of feel like we're the last generation that was taught to think critically. And, mm-hmm. that, and that's the biggest problem, you know, um, with social media. Generally, I find most people aren't developing their own opinions. They're just they're just sort yeah. of piggybacking on what they hear and this out of the other and sound bites and 140 characters or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And it's like, but what do you actually think? Have you read this article? Like, what do you you know, are you just are you just copy copying what someone else has said? Well, and because they have 100,000 followers or like, you know, right. why do you, like how are you actually evaluating? Well, everything you're saying is basically the theme of the podcast. Right. I think the downward facing spiritual spiral embodies everything that you just said. We don't know what's true or false anymore. We are being brainwashed and manipulated. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think there's been thousands of years of people not knowing what's true or false the difference being is to be able to critically think and assess information that you're given you can still come to some sort of reasonable conclusion about something if you are actually thinking about it trying to, to to deduce a particular opinion and not just shepherding others people's other people's opinions or thoughts in particular because you don't really know the motivation behind them saying that. Yeah. They may not even believe it themselves. Right. You know, think about the whole, I mean, this is the whole idea of trolling. Yes. Like it's people running a game of manipulation for various different reasons. Right. You know, I think part of the reason that I got so frustrated 
probably to the point where I wanted to start a podcast. I mean, I've, I've, I wrote a book and I'm writing another one. And, but, you know, I'm a yoga teacher. And to me, yoga sort of embodied the anti-Instagram. And then when I see yoga teachers sort of perpetuating the problem also and doing everything that you're saying and pretending to be perfect and, and have, you know, post uh, po- uh, quotes from Rumi or, or Buddha thinking that they've figured life out. And, and that all that's really doing is perpetuating this sort of fake persona that everybody's doing. And I, I don't think it's, and one of my friends basically said, you know, you're just complaining about it. You know, unless you have a solution, all you're doing is complaining. The reality is, is that, I mean, I don't know the solution yet. Although I'm, I think conversations, reading, questioning, talking to people like you, what are you doing about it? Because I think we're all scared to even talk about it because these huge powers to be being Amazon, Facebook, Apple are, are in control. Well, I, th- I think, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's a big problem to put it quite bluntly and simply. And just in the context in which we're addressing it at the moment, it is really complicated. Yeah. Bring in another bring in another wrinkle to add to this is if you look at it from a broader context, this is so, sort of the issue I have at times. It's like, well, we'll use the example of the yoga teacher quoting Rumi. Um, well, it could be that they are trying to project this image. Or it could be that they discovered this this quote from Romy and it really encapsulates how they feel about this thing. Totally. And then they want to share it. And what is wrong with that? You know? Yeah. And so you, you have this, this you have this weird dichotomy and we and I think a lot of people, generally speaking, for very good reasons, <laughs> can be quite cynical about yeah. it. And these things are tools. You know, uh, uh, a hammer isn't inherently bad, but if it's taken hmm. to someone's head as opposed to a nail to, to connect <laughs> right. two pieces of wood, then it becomes it becomes a tool used for evil or bad. You know, like, yeah, yeah so that, that that's that's what it is. I, I think I think these tools possess a great power. However, we're in this age of information. They're going to talk about the same way they it's going to be written about the same way age of the Renaissance was. We are inundated and are incapable of handling this amount of information. Yeah, that, that's it right there. And, and then the other thing is, is like, well, we want to criticize people for um, for people not telling the truth. There's plenty of times where that's quite intentional. There's other times that are people just are just misinformed. And what makes this another wrinkle of, of how complicated it all is, is we aren't designed as humans to handle all of this of no. what's happening. You know, there's a there's a great book that I read called The Age of the Spiritual Machine mm-hmm. years and years ago. It's by an author named uh, Ray Kurzweil. And oh, I, I well, he's the guy that made the the uh, the keyboard. Yeah, yeah, I think he did. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah Somebody yeah. else told me to read that book. Yeah, so That's so he, funny. So he's, I think he's from Boston. He's someone yes, from he Massachusetts. From Boston. Yeah, yes. and um, he has like it's an insane amount, like over a hundred patents to his name or something like mm-hmm. that. 
he, he in his first patent, um, he developed at like 15. And um, the it's a great read. I, I highly suggest you read it. But I think the easiest way to sum up the book is, and I think he says this towards the beginning, if I recall correctly, I read it such a long time ago, but he says, um, uh, tech, it, it's all about, so it's the age of the spiritual machine. It's all basically all about how, unfortunately, how machines are going to take over AI and whatnot. Sure. And um, he he talks about how technology if you if you compare and put a graph of how humans evolve and grow versus technology, um, humans grow arithmetically, meaning like one plus two plus three plus four mm-hmm. plus five plus six. Technology grows geometrically. So it goes one, two, four, eight, sixteen, oh, thirty-two. So it's just kind of outpacing us. Yes. And we are existing in this world of a pace of something we consume literally on a daily basis yeah. and, and 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 we aren't we aren't evolved and programmed to properly assess it all and then here's another wrinkle right okay then you say well somebody should assess like and and you know maybe legislate out uh things that are false or true yeah. it's like well who do you assign to do that and, and I, do you want to give a party a person an entity that much power possible. to decide exactly and then somebody i, I follow recode decode on instagram and they uh, amazon facebook all these companies just set a new record for the amount of millions of dollars that they sent to lobbyists this past year in the government so you know it's um it's a perpetual it's a it's a cycle that's it's not going to end. And and then the other wrinkle is humans are controlling the news media. And so they're trying to keep up. They're trying to get your attention. They're trying to stand out. This leads to, it's a perfect um, transition. There's a lot that's happening right now. And I'm going to read something. And we'll talk about it because it relates to the media. And so individually, we are consuming. We don't know what's real or false. And and then you bring up this great point about how technology is advancing at a much faster pace than we are. And I you know, I and then the news media is controlled by, you know, human beings and they have dollars and they have eyeballs that they're trying to um capture. So this big story right now and you know this podcast will be published you know, 10 days from now. So this story may, based on the way that we've talked, this story will be old news by then. And something else is going to be, you know, catching everybody's eyes. But the big story now is the Covington um, High School fiasco. And and I just read this article that's on the New York Times today, how we destroy, it's called How We Destroy Lives Today. And I'll there's a few things that I'll refer to. But the first thing I'm going to read It's just the first couple paragraphs. Within living memory, political polarization had at least something to do with issues, but in the age of social media, it's almost entirely about social type. It's about finding and spreading the viral soap operas that are supposed to reveal the dark hearts of those who are in the opposite social type from your own. It's about finding images that confirm your negative stereotypes about people you don't know. It's about reducing a complex human life into one viral moment and then banishing him to oblivion. So this whole thing 
there was the Native American man who, this is what's so fucked up about the whole thing. He told one news source, is everything okay? Mm-hmm. All right, cool. He told one news source one story where these four white boys were in a a verbal battle with these African American Israelites. Am I saying that? Am I Israeli? Yeah, yes, Israelites. Israelites. And then, but then he told another news source a different story where I, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. That the inc- that the, he told the Detroit, the Detroit Free Press that the incident started when the boys started attacking four African Americans. So he decided to intervene. Um, and then he told the Washington Post that he was singing a traditional song when the TJ, teenagers the teenagers swarmed around him, and some chanting "Build that wall, build that wall." He decided the right thing to do was get away. I've got to find myself an exit out of this situation. I'm, obviously, I want to hear your take, but the last thing I'm going to say, and so the news organizations, you know, they ran with it. And now we're coming to find out that, that maybe none of this was actually true. And, and one of the boys was on the Today Show this morning. And But when I looked at the video, he, the boy didn't look as though he was mocking the man. So it's so complicated. So the other wrinkle that this is bringing up is I heard, so I'm listening to the Mark Marin podcast with Aaron Sorkin. I promise this is all going to connect. And he said something really interesting. He said something in the regards of, and Aaron Sorkin is the writer of To Kill a Mockingbird, which again, which is, in, uh, which is playing on Broadway right now, which has so many cultural symbolic connections to what's going on right now, which is so fucking ironic that that's the podcast that I listened to today. Um. The other wrinkle, and he said this, how are you when the cameras aren't on? That's the type of person, you know, you are. And what's fucked up now is that the cameras are on everywhere you go. Everybody has a fucking camera on their phone. And, and then the media is like looking for imagery and stories to grab a hold of and share and then as this article said, you know, people are already racist to begin with, or people already have their own feelings about Native Americans, or, you know, these white boys were wearing a specific hat that was, I forgot what it said, that was obviously in support of, what was it saying? Well, uh, they were, a bunch of them were wearing the, the MAGA hats to make America go. great Mag- again, yes, but Mag- some of them were wearing sweatshirts that said it. They had yes. a lot of make America great again. So. Um, I guess my point is, and this goes back to what we were saying, and I can tell you're chomping on the bit to start talking, so I'm sorry. I promise I'm done. And, you know, I'm, not, I'm so good at not asking a question but talking a lot. Um, but my point is, is that there's so much confusion going on. And then the news sources or the news media is just saying their story, creating this avalanche of emotion. And, and now it's, and it's almost like it reminds me of the bird scooters in the sense that the owner of these companies just puts the fucking scooters out and we're going to deal with it later. So obviously I, I want to get your opinion about what the fuck is going on. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is going on? And am I making well, any sense about like the confusion and the overwhelmed? Like, like I feel like we're little puppets now and little pawns and we're just, what do we do? Well, I, I think quite frankly, what it is is that 
now we we are seeing exactly how we have been puppets. We've been puppets like sure. for a long time. You think about um, when you think about like old glamorous Hollywood. Um, since some of these old stars have gone and passed and there's biographies that have been written about them, you find about all kinds of deviant shit that they were into that were that that was happening. Yeah. But there wasn't as much access to their personal lives. And so they just gave you an image that they wanted to portray or that the studio wanted to portray. So I think the biggest difference and I think a big misconception is um I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that there's a um, it's been exasperated for sure, but it isn't something out of the blue. This has been going on Um, in the same way that I feel like people probably should have been thinking a bit more critically then folks should be doing that now. And so when you think about I've always felt this way. No, I like I never heard anybody say this. I, I was never necessarily taught this, at least in, in any explicit form or specific form. But if you're in a newspaper or some sort of article or watching a program and it says it has a producer and it says it had a, it has an editor, you should be skeptical on some sort of level. Mm-hmm. You're getting someone's perspective Version. Or someone's choice of what they want to show you. Right. When you were referring to what the uh, Native American man told this news outlet versus the other, um, my first question is, is how do we know that? Uh, My second question is, have you ever played the game telephone? Hmm. That has been happening since the dawn of time. And how do we know that? Someone that is right that wrote this article um, decided to extrapolate and perhaps out of context one aspect of what may have been a 30 minute conversation that this guy had. Yeah. And they are choosing and to edit it down to this sound bite and frame it in this way so that that the article could be positioned in such a way like we don't know. But. You do know that you don't know. So that's how you should think about it, in my opinion, you know? Yeah. You know, too many people, I think, operate and go through life dismissing the deficit of knowledge. Right. You know, if you if you aren't that person or you aren't a woman that has experienced that, who are you to say that what she's saying is incorrect or wrong? Like. Why not engage with this person and have a conversation with them and talk with them? Because you don't know their actual experience. You don't know what this guy actually said. You just know an interpretation of it. And you don't know how many how many filters that may have gone through because that journalist has a boss. That boss has a boss like we just don't know. But you know that you don't know. I'm going to say before the I, the problem is, is I don't think people are aware that they don't know. They just assume that whatever is being spewed out has to be truth. And then the amount of work and time it takes to research and find, I mean, we don't have that fucking time anymore. No. So we're just, but then our brains are pro- processing it as though it's true. I think for some people, and I think that you you probably stated it 
correctly in saying that they aren't aware because if you were to pose that question and tell them but you you weren't there to ask him that question so you don't know if he said that then they will become aware oh yeah that's true right so yeah a lot of people just aren't aware now this goes to a uh i think a, a larger kind of meta um problem which is that's sort of the evil genius behind capitalism and what i mean by that is is it keeps you busy enough where it tears you down and breaks away the amount of energy that you would normally have as like what I would say intellectual as an intellectual defense. Yeah. Um, you know, this is part of the reason why for me, and I suspect it's probably the same for you, even before the idea of a DJ was even in the stratosphere of my consciousness, it always was really bizarre to me how much people will spend time in their cars listening to the same rotation of six songs throughout the week and then go and take their hard-earned money to go hear those same songs at a club. Yeah, That never made sense to me. As I got older, it began to make sense because I realized they don't have to think about it. They're mm. worn down mentally, physically. They just want to escape. I want to read one more thing from the article. <laughs> one more thing, a few more paragraphs from the article. And I want to ask you just on a personal level, you know, how you handle the information and are, are you skeptical first before trusting what you're reading? But in this technology, stereotype is more salient than persons. In this technology, a single moment is more important than a life story. In this technology, a main activity is proving to the world that your type is morally superior to the other type. It's hard to believe that people are going to continue forever on platforms where they are so cruel to one another. It's hard to believe that people are going to be content year after year to distort their own personalities in service to a platform. So as I, as I finish reading that, and it goes back to my original question, I mean, what do you do personally when it's interesting, you know, this is from the New York times, but then as you say, you know, he has a perspective, he has a boss, you know, the New York times is known as a liberal newspaper. Uh, and it was, it's, it, and it's interesting, you know, Fox could probably reports that story that happened in Covington in their own way. When the story came out or just for example, or, or, you know, when news comes out or big stories come out, what, what do you do to try and, be objective about it all um you know there are definitely as as much as it does pain me i do make a conscious choice to go like check out fox to see how they're describing the story or the incident um with this particular story i didn't get a chance to do that but just generally speaking i do try to do that um and you know obviously i have npr so i have a couple of different outlets um, but to give you, obviously not every story will have the same circumstances as this one, but to specifically reference this story is I don't have to see, or I don't have to read right. an article 
or hear someone's perspective, I can just see the pictures and have a very basic level understanding of what's going on or a certain person's perspective. And what I say about that is without knowing that much about that young man, right? I feel completely comfortable in assuming he understands that that hat is in some form or fashion in support of Trump. Yes. And if he is in some support, if he's in some fashion supporting Trump, then he has a tremendous lack of empathy, understanding, and uh, 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 also a tremendous deficit of knowledge when it comes to um, both history and generally life experience. And what I mean by generally life experience, he looks like he was young. Oh, you, you know, he, he, 14, I think he's in high 15, school or something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's there's that aspect of it, and there may they may be there may be plenty of people that were in that group of his that will grow to learn that um, you may like certain things about Trump or certain opinions he may have or respect something about him, right. and will come to a conclusion. That morally, generally speaking, from a society, any way that you are supporting him, you are also supporting all of the bad things about him. So, you know, without reading an article about exactly what went on, I can literally just see that picture and assess, I think, enough about that situation as far as for me personally. Yeah, and I th- just looking at the way the boy is standing there in front of the man with a smirk. Yeah, and like, I know. I, I like. I could see why you would feel that way because I felt that way also. Um, I think the article, though, it's it's interesting because you know we all have our opinions. But the way that the story is presented, well, here's the thing. It's interesting. Because of all this, that boy now is thrust into the spotlight. He's thrust onto the the Today Show today. And he's saying things that clearly aren't his words. Somebody told him everything he had to say. He's just a boy. Is he racist? I don't know. Are his parents racist? I don't know, but because everybody has cameras and phones everywhere, they captured this image and it's thrust into the spotlight because somebody is making that decision to make it newsworthy. And now everybody's reeling and trying to make sense of it all. And now he's on the Today Show and it's he's in a position bigger than he ever imagined. And it's... And it's creating a place where people are petrified to actually be themselves because they're worried that the freaking cameras are around. Um, yeah, I, I mean, because of how young he is, I doubt that he has the proper context to think of it in the same terms that you and I do. Like, sure. oh, people are petrified because cameras are around. That's the only world he's known. Yeah. So, oh, wow. so, so, so I, I, I doubt that he even thinks about it in those terms. 
But a couple of things that comes to mind um, in response to what you just said. Um, Because he has been handled in such a way, in my opinion, from what I've seen, I haven't seen all of the entire coverage, but I did see um, a little bit of the interview he had on NBC. I think it was Um, he was handled with such like delicate hands that 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 to me um, and as a person of color, personally speaking, that perpetuates the problem. Yeah. I also think. Too often, one of the reasons why things like this happen is because people are allowed to go on these stations and move throughout life with this unbelievably vague and consequently incorrect idea of what it means to be racist. And so... Yeah. That I can say unequivocally, that guy's racist. People need to people need to redefine what their definition is. Right. And I can say unequivocally, without any refusion, with full conviction and belief, if you accept this stuff that that you know Trump says does or whatever that is racist, yeah. and you dismiss it for these other things that you feel are more valuable that makes you a racist sorry that well, that you're just fight figuring this out but that makes you a racist what's interesting i'm saying something about <clears throat> the cameras have to make you behave in a perfect way now but your perspective and i hear what you're saying now it's just ultimately these cameras are showing what's been out there all along. That's exactly what I'm saying. And if you have to be that uptight or pretend to per- put off a certain persona, then you're actually, well, if that's that hard for you to do, then that's too bad. To be completely honest with you, most people of color I knew was not surprised that Trump won. I and, wasn't surprised that they were. And and I will also say that there were there was a certain aspect of welcoming of it because we were like, let's fucking turn the lights on and let these wretches run. Let's yeah. get this shit out of there. Too long has been hidden and people still try to tiptoe around. It's like, no, call that little boy what he is. He's a fucking racist. Yeah. You trying to like sugarcoat it and handle and handle it with like baby gloves. Is exactly what creates this. Right. Call him out for what he is. Yeah. And this is exactly why I pointed to. I was like, I don't need to read that article. I see the picture. And that tells me enough enough. about the story. I think the only reason I brought up the story. And I didn't mean it in a. I didn't mean it to make you upset. I mean, but I can oh, see. Oh no, I'm not upset. No, at all. but I can yeah. see why. You know, you, it's like it's a fucking cycle that just goes around and around and around. It's interesting. You're from Inglewood, and I came out to L.A. and I swear this connects to what you're talking about. I came out to L.A. in the early '90s when to go to college and. I love Los Angeles now. I'm suddenly like losing my voice, so I apologize. When I talk a lot, I guess um, LA right now is, I think, incredible. I love it out here. But when I came out here, 
O.J. Simpson, Rodney King, Camp, and, and, and this is how this connects to what you're talking about and, and this story. And this is why I brought it up, because I'm not disagreeing with you about him being racist. And that look in his eyes, he was being a, he was being a little shit. He was provoking. It, it looked as though he was... Now, but this is my point. The media has a responsibility in all of this also. You know, I'm bringing up Rodney King and O.J. Simpson because it is reminding me of the media's responsibility. And I feel like, okay, these cameras showed that terrible thing happening in the early 90s. But they kept showing it over and over again. And I mean, on your hand, I could see, well, they're just showing the truth. But they also are, they created this fucking firestorm. And I think they made, and then they started showing more of the coverage. And then the OJ Simpson, when they were showing the coverage, it, it created this huge fucking storm that maybe it's there. Maybe it's, it's always there. And we're not talking about it. I mean, what I would say is, I suppose it depends on your definition of firestorm. But irrespective of your definition of firestorm, um, I imagine whatever you may define that as is similar to our existence. If it has created this world, this culture, this society that's under tyranny, well, welcome to our lives. That's not new. This is what we've been dealing in and in, 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 in having to navigate somehow. And so the idea that I completely agree there is a level of responsibility uh, with the media. I think responsibility isn't inherently a negative or a positive connotation, though. So you have, so you have to be careful about like saying that hmm. and it meaning or connoting a certain thing because it is really easy to be critical of something that forces you out of a comfort zone and situation and 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 so it's like oh i don't really want to see that or maybe this is what it causes like guess what maybe that is what needs to happen right for your other residents in your city and your society and your culture to maybe get a bit closer to a level of equality. People have been talking about what happened to Rodney King for decades. Yeah. As a a black, I primarily always went to school in Inglewood, but the first half of my life, I was actually raised in South Central. When I was in South Central, I always went to school in Inglewood. Um, I remember growing up and I have no doubt that I could ask anybody around my age. I don't know if it's like this now with somebody who's 14 or 16 or something like that. But without even having a previous conversation or questioning somebody, I could literally talk to another black man or black boy and say, what neighborhoods do you should you avoid at night? I knew as a black man didn't go to Beverly Hills at night. Culver City, historically, has really, I don't know if it's still the same, but historic, historically, has had really racist cops. My uncle has been beat up by Culver City cops. This stuff has been happening for a long, long time. Right. 
which was part of the reason why it created such a could you imagine like the level of psychosis it created for black Americans when these men were found not guilty? Oh my God. When it's like, yo, finally we caught these fools on tape. Everybody sees it. I'll tell you what, if you had any sort of inclination that maybe we were equal and it was just a bad fat, uh, a bad few actors the fact that that verdict was so widely accepted oh. by the larger society made it unbelievably evidently clear that all white people saw us lesser than because they did not fight for us in the way that they should have. And I think that that is pretty difficult to refute and argue against. Yeah. And so even if you aren't yourself an actual perpetrator of this, if you see if you uh, if you see the injustice and or you know and have some sort of semblance of of being a benefactor of it then you are complicit that's just that's just the truth of the matter and i know it's difficult for certain people to hear that but that is the truth and guess what if that's difficult imagine living like us <laughs> like you know get get out of being like yeah. like being put out your comfort zone you know yeah like you know you're 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 risk you're you're risking our lives and livelihood at the altar of your comfort you know yeah and when i when i say you i'm not talking about you quite specifically oh, yeah. you know i'm talking i'm talking i'm talking in generalities um so anyway i think you get and understand my point of of of, of what i was saying Are you hopeful or are you discouraged? Have you sensed a change or did you feel like the change that you were sensing is now going backwards ever since um, Donald Trump got into office? Um, no, I, I, I generally speaking, I would say that I'm hopeful, which might surprise you um, because it does appear that with Barack, we took one step forward just to take two steps back. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're a person of color, specifically if you're black, like you knew that didn't mean that like all had been resolved and changed. Like we were still living it. We each individual black person named Barack Obama. So we right. weren't living the same existence in life that he was, you know, um, while also recognizing that clearly we have made some steps forward and some progress has been made. Clearly, you can't argue that. OK. Um, but the reason, the reason why I'm hopeful may surprise you, um, is because we have a Donald Trump in office and because all of these things are being exposed that have been there. Yeah. The only way that you can actually resolve it is a level of confrontation. This country has never really resolved its original sin and that being slavery. Hmm. These people that are that seem to be coming out of the woodworks is like they literally not only have more exposure and access to tools to expose themselves or for them to be exposed. But they also have in the form of the the man with the highest power in the land, 
as a dog whistle and advocate for them. Right. So it's like, yo, let everybody see this shit that we know is here and that exists and that happens when cameras are turned another way or something. Right. And so I think whatever is going to happen, it will be positive, generally speaking, after this ultimate sort of confrontation. And it is sort of like a a crossroads of the soul of the the country. Right. And I think it will end up being a positive resolution on the other end. Um, But I kind of I kind of think of it as like there is a certain um, school of thought that has existed in this country for a long, long time. Um, Mostly. Mostly perpetuated by white heterosexual males that now are feeling as though they are uh, the 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 thing that comes to mind is like sort of an 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 animal that feels like they're going to be cornered and so they're just acting out crazy you know but recognizing that the end is coming near of whatever they were falsely convinced that they had, you know? And so I think, I think that's all, I think, I think that's what's, what's happening. Like it's Donald Trump and to a certain extent is representing the scab being pulled off. It's like expose what this nastiness is. We can assess exactly how we need to clean it up and move forward. Yeah. So that's why I'm hopeful as strange as that might sound. No, I, I, I get it. I, <clears throat> I mean, part of me worries, like, how, how, do, how do we follow that, you know? Um, well, I think, I think the, main, the main way that this ultimately gets resolved as a confrontation will be from a place of, of um, I mean, by the actual textbook definition of empathy is like you actually literally experiencing something that some, that someone else experienced. So unless you are a black American, you can't really say that, but you can have the utmost highest level of sympathy yeah. and approach it with compassion. And that's how you move on from it. I think the way you move on from it is exactly how it's resolved. Hmm. It's going to be nasty and it's going to be ugly, but yeah. you know, this thing has been, manifesting and it has been this nasty culture that has had a and i mean culture like in a scientific form right like you know something in the lab it's the culture has been growing for hundreds of years so yeah it's not going to end very quickly especially if you're just now coming to a point of confronting it right you know i want to ask you a question i just thought of something you said about the boy we live in a world now where like we we can't be human beings anymore. And I'll try to explain. Like, humans get mad and get pissed off and angry. And, you know, we fall in love and we have all these ranges of emotions. But I feel like Instagram and social media is create because we can't portray anger anymore. We can't portray a bad day or frustration or disagreements and Instagram is really just showing perfection and pretty pictures all the time. And 
it's everything's good. There's no bad on Instagram. Although we know the bad is everywhere. So I was just thinking like, could that boy have had a bad day? This person who's only like the person that's posting nothing but hot pictures of their ass or their body or something. Maybe they're like actually depressed. We, I feel like we don't know how to consume a human being's full range of emotions anymore because Instagram is sort of like tricking our brains into thinking that, you know, you're good or you're bad. That's it. You know, you're either happy or you're sad. You're mad or you're, it's, and as that, I, I just think there's so much complexity to the human being, but because we're spending all of our time as a culture, looking at things like our phone and Instagram it's making a human being seem so simple. And now... Almost like binary or something. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Sure. Um, but the first thing I would say is um, I get the full range of humanity on my feed. Yeah. It isn't just all good. Um, I, you know, people um, that are in my in my circle in one form of... Or another. Give me an example then. Like, give me an example of your feed, or what do you mean, like what you're experiencing? Um, people being angry about yeah. about things that they're seeing, or um, that that particular story with with the boy and the Native American. Um, people exposing them dealing with depression. Wow. Um, yeah, I've I've seen. I don't, I don't all that. see that. Yeah, yeah, okay. I get I get in, I get and see see all of that. Um, and speaking of which, that was part of the next thing that I was going to mention is, um, I think some of it is changing. Um, you know, there's been so much openness and discussion as a society and culture about mental health that I think that is helping to destigmatize. Um, um, you know, certain labels and monikers that people have been given and then therefore sort of cast away or put into this silo existence. Right. Um, because they were bipolar or this, that, or the other, or depressed or something like that. Um, I would also say that even if I, I, there's just, it's probably one of the few times you'll hear me quote, quote Donald Rumsfeld, but he says something that was so um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was it was uh, it was it was incredible. That's the wrong word that I'm looking for. But he said that there was three levels of knowing, you know what you know, you know what you don't know and you don't know what you don't know. Right. There's always Nothing more, nothing less. Those three levels of knowledge. So to take your example of the girl that's like posting these pictures, wearing close to nothing and exposing her body and stuff. There's there's some things that plenty of people who see her doing that could guess. And many of them may be right. And it may be as simple as the obvious answer. It could be that. You know what? Prior to her starting Instagram, she was severely obese, worked her ass mm. off, 
got her body in a great shape and she's super proud of yeah. it. And you know what? God damn it. Good for her. Yeah. If she wants to show it off, like, yo, that's dope. Like <laughs> we, the chances and probability of that being the case with that specific individual is probably low. Yeah, but that's a but, really good positive way of looking but that, at it. But, but that's the truth. You don't know. Yeah. Similarly to what I was saying about the article earlier. Like, yeah. you know you don't know. You can you can try to make a judgment, but just you because don't it's know. in the New York Times, and it's a, but it's still an opinion piece, and it's still an opinion piece, and it may also be because they may actually be giving in these two different articles that are presenting two different versions of the story, the quote or the version of the story. They may actually be correct, but the way they choose to craft the story around this quote that the guy had, right. You know, that is different. And that's how that's what makes it a bit misleading, because some people will read that and be like, well, this guy was lying about what happened. He said over here that this happened. It's like, no, you're seeing an edited version. How about the raw transcript? So where do you both the question and the answer? Where do you go to find your truth then? Where do you go to where where do I go to find my truth? Uh I have always been someone who has been very centered Okay. And um and comfortable with myself and I I feel generally speaking it's a combination for me quite specifically of a level of intuition that mm. you can't teach obviously. Right. Um coupled with reading a lot, being aware of history understanding that life is a series of moments so this may not make sense but um when you're driving for instance and someone cuts you off your first instinct might be to like curse them out yeah and the truth of the matter is is that may have been the one and only time that person has done it in two years. You just happen to be at that moment when they did it. Right. And you don't know what conversation they may have just left or how they perhaps were distracted. Maybe it was another car that forced them to do that. Like, you just don't know. And I would say, generally speaking, I made reference to it at the beginning of the, the interview. I have... A very when you ask me if I'm frustrated if people don't know I've been, I was like, sure. I've been there for eleven years or something. <clears throat> no, not at all. Because I have had um two, not one, but two near death experiences. And I always think of the first one, which happened when I was twelve, as being the most significant of the two. And even though the second one happened when I was relatively young as well, that happened when I was eighteen. But the reason why I think the one at 12 was the most significant, because when you think about someone being 12 years old, that is well in advance and well before you start questioning your place in the world, the meaning of life or anything like that. So my perspective, no telling what the hell it would have been if I never had that experience. But I found out at a very young age how delicate, fleeting life can be. And it immediately forced any and everything moving forward into yeah. what I what I deem and categorize as the proper and right perspective and consequently the healthy perspective in moving forward in life. It's so interesting that you talk about that. <clears throat> when I was 12, I was 
sick for about seven months. And doctors didn't know what was wrong with me. I, I missed a lot of school. I was in and out of hospitals. And I still remember this day. And I swear this is going to connect to what you brought up in social media. Um, I remember waiting at the hospital and they had this long, like 10 inch needle going into my spine to determine if I had leukemia because I'd been sick for so long and it sort of came down to, well, more than likely he has leukemia. And that's basically at the age of 12, a death sentence because, um, especially back then there was really barely any treatment for it. Um, and so I ended up, you know, they figured out, I, had, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and I was on all these meds for, I was on meds on and off for like five years. But it's that experience, and maybe it's funny, I've never met you before. My point is, is that when something bad happens to you, and I, I hate to say the, the, the word bad, but challenging, at, at, at a young age, whether it's divorce, health, violence, it stays with you. And anything that challenges your perspective of life, because you just, you don't know about it. But when you get acquainted with that at a young age, it stays with you forever. And I think that's why I'm how I am today. And I'm asking these questions and wanting more because I know how fragile life is. And if you're spending your free time staring at Instagram and stories and being manipulated, you're wasting time. And I think that's, you know, that's, I I want more from our lives, from society. I want us to not be fucking robots because... All this could be gone tomorrow. Yeah, man. It's so true. Um, you know, just to go back quickly to your question of like, where do I find my truth? You know, I was kind of sh- struggling to come up with that answer. And as as we continue talking, like I sort of realized why. And I'll I'll. I'll answer it with a little bit of an antidote from my grandfather, my 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 uh, father's father. And just to contextualize uh, this man, he graduated high school and he was like 14, I believe. Um, he was pretty close to becoming a, um, a grandmaster in chess, like just a brilliant guy. Hmm. And I can't ever really retell the story without mimicking him. So I'm going to I'm going to going to say it in his voice all my family calls me by my first and middle name by the way which is david um in fact my mom almost exclusively calls me david um and and that's like both sides of my family call me aaron david crazy enough but um um and my parents aren't together so which makes it even more weird but both but both sides of my family for some reason call me aaron david and so he said aaron david let me tell you something, young man. The truth never changes. The perception of the truth always does. So when you say, how do you find your truth? Um, what, I, what I didn't realize how I should have answered it at the moment is, 
I'm completely accepting of what I don't know. And I'm completely okay with that. And I also feel like there's really only one truth, maybe a couple. And that is we are here on earth to love one another. It sounds cheesy. You, you've heard it in like, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, old tales and fables and books and music and stuff. And I I completely understand and, and can appreciate how somebody would, would, would want to dismiss it. But at, at the core of my essence, I know that as being the one and only truth. Yeah. Everything else is just us navigating this thing, this messy thing called life and this messy thing of being imperfect humans. It feels like you have a pretty open you have people in your world that you talk about all this stuff already. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Because it's interesting. Most of the guests that I've had on, I think almost all of them, they'll tell me, boy, I haven't talked like this. I don't remember the last time I talked like this. Like, years. And I just got the sense that that wasn't the case for <laughs> you. And, and why, do you, why is that? Hmm. Why is that? Um, yeah, I feel like you I just, surround yourself with really like, is it how you were raised or um, I, I just, I don't feel like people are having these conversations, but, and maybe that's a fair state, but here, ironically, I feel like you already are. I am. Yeah. Um, how, and, and how is that? Why is that? I don't I don't think it's one reason. I think there's I think there's several. Um, you know, I I am the summation of my life experiences at this point, so I can't dismiss how I was raised. Um, I don't know how directly that may have caused my ability to have people in my life to engage this way. I'm not sure, but I also recognize that I can't dismiss it. Um, I just can't draw a direct parallel necessarily. Um, though I will say that my, my, my mom is a really smart lady and she always, um, encouraged us to like, I always felt really comfortable about talking to her, talking to her about anything. Um, I think because no one has ever asked me that question before. So, so I'm sort of talking through my analysis of it now. So bear with me. It's okay. But I but I but I also think that there is um based on not in this not in this specific context with which we're discussing, but based on a lot of experiences I've had with people and how they interact with me, that there is something that I have that's a part of my energy and my essence that comes across in this some sort of weird amalgamation of intentional and genuine 
um, and, and curious at the same time. And there's a level of comfortability that people have that now this I can say I definitely have gotten as a part of nature by way of my mom. Um, we're growing up. I used to kind of be embarrassed by my mom because complete strangers, we'd be at a bank or at a grocery store, complete strangers would just talk to my mom and would tell her stuff that like, wow, I've never said that to anybody. They just felt so inspired and at ease around my mom that they would just want to talk to her Hmm. and express themselves and maybe cover and discuss topics and conversations that they otherwise didn't feel comfortable with around their friends or their family. So you, you have this amalgamation of like a person that's moving in this world with, with great intention coming across genuine and is curious with this other sort of essence that my mom has, I, I am the result of that. And so people that are around me slash that I attract, then they feel more compelled to have these type of conversations because the lack of these conversations happening, I don't think is, is entirely due to a lack of curiosity or questioning, but there are people, individuals that for whatever reason don't feel or probably several reasons don't feel comfortable in engaging in that way with others. Yeah, I, agree. I, I, I don't I don't know why. You know, there's some we can probably come up with some very obvious reasons, but I think it goes beyond those very obvious reasons. And that's why I says like, you know, I'm kind of talking through this because based on my interactions outside of even this specific context with which you're asking me this question, I say there is something a part of my my spirit, my energy that um, people are attracted to. And so outside of them engaging with me and or my other friends who also have these conversations, they're not having it on a regular basis with their family or their other friend groups, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, my my girlfriend and I, we talk about these kind of things, but I'm also aware part of her attraction to me is this amalgamation of this essence I don't have a name for. And I and I don't really know what it is, but I recognize it as its existence, you know, like even even as something as simple and maybe rudimentary as uh, my voice, I have. I have come to discover, and it's something I've discovered quite a long, quite quite some time ago now. But I eventually was able to discover there's a lot of things that I can say to people, or say out loud, or how I can engage with people that I'm a hundred percent convinced has to do with something about my speech, the cadence, the sound, mm. the depth of it. It resonates in a way that is more agreeable to people. And so I'm able to get away with saying stuff to folks that most other people cannot. It's so funny that you say that because I have that same thing. Yeah, yeah, right? And and it's, I can be sarcastic and I'll, I'll say, even with some of my African-American friends or somebody that I work with, I'll even say a couple, I, they're certainly not racist, but I certainly can like, 
challenge or, 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 you know, say jokes that could be like interpreted. I, I, I'm not even sure how to say it right. without sounding like a jerk because I'm not, but I'm able to pull it off. Might be on the edge, right? Yes. But you know someone else who looks like you and maybe and they would not of- be able to do it. No. And, yeah. and I've always had that thing. And I mean, I have a pretty good sense of humor, mm-hmm. but I think what you're talking about is that when you walk into a room or people come together, you have a way with the language, the way that you communicate. It's probably your face too. It's and a combination it's, of all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I'm able, even I mean, even, I mean, I'm I'm Jewish, and I'll tell. I have this way of communicating to different types of people, where, like, how did he say that? But somehow it's actually like I get it. It's funny, or yeah, you're gonna say something. It's been scientifically proven that DNA has memory. And the reason why I bring that up is because you also come from a lineage and group of people that have been through horrible atrocities, that have been through things that humans should not have experienced. You carry that through your DNA, similar to myself. I imagine that that is part of what allows us to execute our lives and engagements with people to a certain way. There's something about that, that um, even though it may be, may probably couldn't be scientifically detectable, but there's, there's something about having that history when we speak, when we engage the way we think about things, it resonates with others because there is sort of maybe a raw, basic level of compassion that comes across yeah. that way yeah. because of that history. I wouldn't be surprised if that has something to do with it, you know? So I guess in closing, I think I want to ask you about music. Because music is, like, to me, Spotify sort of devalued music. You know, um, Instagram devalues the power of photographs because everybody can take them now and everybody's posting them now. So, and I also remember seeing a story on CNN about where you were actually on, on television talking about Childish Gambino's video this is america and and you were talking about how the way he was dancing was similar to the jim crow days and and what was what was the dancing that he was doing how did you describe it um well it was part of there's a there's a famous um image um from the jim jim crow uh, era and many of the moves he was making was just like part of that iconography um I don't know if that particular dance move was was called anything, but that's that's essentially what yeah, I was saying. But yeah. I just remember you sort of referring to yeah. it, and and but I guess my point is, is that was another experience where I saw you on television, and you were talking about the power of that video and the power of music, and and how it brings people together and can make us think, and and that's you know being a DJ in LA. There's a lot of power and responsibility with that and, and making people aware of new music and, and, and you're touching people and you're inspiring people to hopefully think and you certainly did for me. So 
I mean, when did music become this sort of spiritual, personal, transcendent experience for you? And, and how has it been a big part of your life? And I, and I know it's, it still has to be a huge deal. And, and I want to connect that to present day, but when did, when, what's your relationship with music and, and what did you grow up listening to and how has it been such a big part of your life? It's always been a big part of my life. Yeah. Um, you know, when did it become like this big spiritual transient medium or tool? I Man, I, I think as soon as I crossed the threshold of the womb, to be honest. Yeah. Um, growing up, and this is, I would say, quite stereotypical of a black family. Like, music is a big part of your experience and family and growing up. Um, I, I have distinct memories of making sure when I was a certain age, probably from the age of, I don't know, uh, seven to 12 or something like that, or maybe even earlier six or something, um, making sure that I got up early enough so I can catch my cartoons because my mom would not let us watch cartoons past a certain hour. We were cleaning up the house and the entire time we were cleaning up the house, washing dishes, vacuuming, whatever the case may be, music was playing the yeah. entire time. Um, family gatherings, music was playing the entire time. Uh, I mean, music is is a pretty plays a an incredibly significant role with the black experience generally. I mean, you you take it back to slave era, um, where you had these Africans that they may have all left the same port, but they were coming from different places that spoke different dialects, and hence you have what eventually unified many of them in the form of what we know to be the talking drum. Right. The music is what they could uh, all universally understand, you know? So it, it plays a, a really crucial, significant, unbelievably important role to the black American experience, you know? Well, specifically, do you remember like <clears throat> in your teens or under the age of 10, what your mom was listening to or, you know, what first bands or singers or what what were you responding to that you resonated towards at, at a young age um definitely yeah i mean uh you know my mom like even though i don't really remember listening to them but my mom loved the beatles growing up um i remember hearing a ton of michael franks a ton of sade hmm. um and then obviously all of the oldies um that you know, even at that time were, were considered oldies, songs that she listened to in high school. So maybe things 20 years prior, whether it was The Emotions or um, uh, Blue Magic or, um, you know, obviously like Motown stuff. Um, uh, yeah, all, all kinds of things. And then I also have an older sister who is like 11 and a half years older than me. So, um, you know, at an abnormally young age, like I knew all the words to like Houdini songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that era of uh, early to late 80s um, when you probably wouldn't be that uh, that knowledgeable of certain artists catalog, especially to the extent where you knew the lyrics to the songs, unless you were a teenager, I knew at like six and seven, yeah, you know, because I had this older sister. Um, 
Yeah, so... Were you a musician? No. Okay, mm-hmm. so you've never played... But when did you... When did the transition go from, you know, listening to music to actually, you know, start DJing? And, and I don't... Did you play, you know, did you get turntables or, or, or did you, you know, teach yourself more on the more computer eyes where, you know, we're using Serato and Tractor and all that sort of stuff. But when, and how did you, you know, tell me more about that transition of getting your first gig DJing, where you just like doing parties with friends and how do you ultimately become a DJ at KCRW? But, uh, but how did, how did the transition go from just, you know, listening to enjoying to actually making that turn, turn or taking that turn towards DJing? Um, there, there's no short version of the story. <laughs> So I'll just tell you, um, when I was in high school, I, I first of all I loved physics. Um, when I I, sub, I subsequently ended up double majoring and minoring when I was at UCLA, but I began as just and entered just as a mechanical engineering major. In high school, uh, my sophomore year, I had a physics teacher, and he told us this quote. Uh, which is at the moment of commitment, the universe conspires to help you. And at the time, he said it was from the German philosopher Goethe. It really resonated with me, um, I think, for several reasons, um, some of which are probably I'm, I'm in some realm of my subconscious. But on a very conscious level, one of the main reasons why it really resonated with me and it always stuck with me is because it was a very succinct way um, to explain how my mother raised us. She raised us with that basic same belief. Um, now, I go all the way back to high school because, as is, I would say, fairly common, I don't know about for African-American young girls or women, but for African-American boys, you once you're around college, you start to get really interested in your genealogy. Hmm. And so I knew... I knew very briefly that I had some Native American ancestry and like I saw a picture um, my my grandfather, my grandmother showed me when I was younger of I guess she would have been my 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 third great grandmother and she was black as night. She was black. There was no denying that in full Native American attire, like dressed head to toe. So I knew I had some Native American like genealogy. I knew a little bit about where my people came from. And at the time it was called the Washita Nation. Mm-hmm. And the Washita Nation is basically what we describe as the Midwest now. And in fact, I'm pretty sure Wichita, Kansas. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Originates from the Washita Nation. Yeah. Um, so I say all this to say when I'm in college, because the universities, especially the public universities, uh, they are the, the, the beholders. Their libraries are the beholders of like all of the knowledge <laughs> and secrets of the world, man. People don't realize yeah. it. So being at a research university, UCLA, I dug into the books and I wanted to know more about like my people and stuff. What I found out is essentially Native Americans, as we know that, know them to be, are either... Chinese, African, or a result of that union of Africans and Chinese Mm. mating. And the bulk of the people as part of the Washita Nation, from what I read and and began to learn, um, were originally Moors 
from Africa. Wow. Moors are the ones that essentially championed and came up with the idea science of astrology. And they were some of the greatest navigators to have ever been on Earth. Um, the Moors of Northern Africa. Through this process, I discovered that they also had a belief, sort of a proverb, at the moment of commitment, the universe conspires to help you. It originated from them. It was an ancient Kemet proverb. Kemet became known as Egypt. Wow. Pre-Egypt, it was called Kemet. And so I was like, I was like, what? That's why the saying resonated with me. It's from my people. Like, that's why I get it. Yeah. So one day when I was on campus, have you ever been to UCLA's campus? Yeah, of course. It's a beautiful campus, especially where the four original buildings are. It reminds you a lot of um, I haven't spent that much time uh, at universities on the East Coast. But what you see on film and television, it kind of those four original buildings in particular look like an East Coast campus. Yeah, UCLA does have an East Coast campus vibe to it for sure. Yeah. So I was walking near uh, around those original buildings. I have no idea what inspired this moment in these thoughts but it just happened and i stopped near the buildings and was just filled with this tremendous amount of gratitude and i was uh, i distinctly remember i don't remember what i was listening to but i was listening to uh i had my my portable i was wearing my portable cd player mm-hmm. kind of dates me <laughs> yeah ipods were out at the time i was just a poor college student so i couldn't afford <laughs> yeah, one yeah. yeah but i was listening to music and i was like Man, I'm just so grateful. I think about kids I grew up with, some of which were killed or paralyzed or didn't even make it to college. And I'm like, you know, statistic at that point, I have no idea what the statistics are now. But at that point, one out of every three African-American males were either dead or in jail by the age of 21. So I was like, you know, I've I've beat the statistics and. I just had this long thought process of like how grateful I was of being at at a place like UCLA, this, that, or the other, and and I was like, you know what? I I've always felt, um, and I should have said this too. I've always felt part of my purpose here on Earth is to help my people, help my my community of people in some form or fashion. And I was like, you know, I'm studying engineering. I was like. I need to take advantage of these resources that I have access to, like being at UCLA. Somehow this like I'm just like literally standing there. I'm probably looking kind of crazy. But I was just like in in a moment and I have no idea where it came from. Yeah. Somehow this train of thought led me to declare, you know what? I'm going to pursue music. I I don't I, I, re- I remember thinking this thought. I don't rap. I don't sing. I don't play an instrument. But I'm living proof that at the moment of commitment, the universe conspires to help you. And I just like I just made that declaration, sent it out to the universe, went on about my day around this time. I um, decided that I was such a big fan of KCRW and I felt guilty whenever I would hear Jennifer Farrell talk about. Oh, if you've been listening for years, you haven't donated money. Now's your time to donate yeah. money. But I was always a poor high school or college student. Right. But around this time, it dawned on me, you know what? My time is worth money. I'll donate my time. So I, be, so I started volunteering at the yeah. station. I worked at the front desk. Completely unbeknownst to me, after three months of working at the front desk, you can become an assistant to a DJ. And you get three training sessions. 
You get to pick any three shows, irrespective if you ultimately end up becoming an assistant to that DJ or that time slot. It doesn't matter. You can pick any three shows right. to train on. So I picked my three favorite shows, which were there was a late night show that was on Tuesday nights, midnight to three with this guy named Kevin Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Caught the blueprint. Yes. I used to get high and study to that all the time right. and like just used to chill because he played mostly down tempo chill music. Is he still out here? He's still around. Okay. I'm pretty sure he's still alive and stuff. I mean, he's not in. I don't think he's in radio at all. No, but yeah. But I'm trying, of course, I know you're going to bring up Garth Trinidad. His show is on after Jason's, and I know Jason's with Metropolis, but I'm suddenly forgetting Garth's the name of his show. Chocolate City. That's right, Chocolate City. Yeah, yeah. So um, Metropolis was one of my favorite shows, and my favorite show was Chocolate City with Garth yeah. Trinidad. So I had my three training sessions. The third of which was with Garth. And, um, I, Garth, I mean, Garth is exactly how you think he is. Um, and we had an instant rapport and connection with one another at the time. Cause he used to come on after Metropolis, as right. you said. But at this time there was, I can't remember how many years it was. He was on Saturdays from six to nine. So this was the time when he was on Saturdays from six to nine. We spent the entire three hours talking about all kinds of stuff. Absolutely nothing having to do with music. Hmm. After the show, we're walking and talking, completely unbeknownst to me. Once again, I park like right near him. And he's like, yeah, man, so what are you doing here? So I told him, I was like, you know, the whole story of like, I didn't have money, wasn't donating my time. And he stopped me. He was like, no, no, what are you really doing here? Yeah. And I was just like, I, I, I just told you. He said, look, man, I've been doing Chocolate City coming up to close to a decade and what started off as a labor of love um, has become a responsibility to a community of people, but I'm not going to be doing this forever. But those people have allowed and afforded myself and my family a particular lifestyle that I'm grateful for. So I owe it to that community of people that when I move on, I pass it on to somebody who is worthy. He said, you obviously have the right taste in music because you're here. You have a great voice. I was I was listening to you because I was like, as a volunteer, you like answer phones and sure. do ticket giveaways and stuff. <clears throat> it was like, you know, I was listening to you. And he was like, he said, to be completely honest, I've been looking for a brother your caliber to walk through these doors for a long time. And you remind me a lot of myself. Um, so if this is something you're interested in, I'll let the powers be uh, know um, what my intentions are with you. And um, and and we can move forward. And I, and I want to take you underneath my wing. I literally met the guy at this point, probably three out. His show was on three hours. It was probably three hours and 12 minutes prior to this. Yeah. And he was offering himself up to me like that. And that's it, unheard I, of. It is unheard of. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, Garth is as cool as a fan, smooth as butter. But on the inside, I'm jumping up and down like a three year old little girl. I'm sure. like, whoa, this is crazy. And I, and I, and I answer him saying, one day I was walking on campus and then, and I told him the whole story. And I was like, do you know that was almost exactly two months ago to the day? And he just smiled at me. He was like, yeah, man, you're the one. You're the one. And so he was like, look, whenever you can come by on a Saturday, take notes. Whenever I'm free afterwards, we'll train and um, and we'll just move forward with that. That went on for about a year. Every single Saturday I was in town, didn't have any other obligations. I was there every Saturday. And what's crazy is over the course of a year, he was so busy. We actually only trained a total of like eight or nine times over the course of a year. Right. Um, but 
Um, some other stuff happened, as you might imagine. But eventually I was offered a show at the station because I got the show at the station. I taught myself how to DJ. Yeah. So it, you would think it would happen the other way around. Yeah, you really had an interesting trend or I don't want to say transition, but your entrance into DJing is pretty un. It's unconventional. For unconventional. Sure. That's the word. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. unconventional. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. And and the only reason why I taught myself how to DJ, I was like, well, well you I'm kind of had to. I'm a DJ on KCRW. <laughs> People gonna want me to DJ. I better figure out how to do this. Yes. And so yeah, I just taught myself how to DJ, and yeah. that's 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 how it started, and that's how it began. But it was this moment of walking on campus. I declared to the universe in a way that I had been raised to do so, and up until that point was living proof that it was true. At the moment of commitment, the universe inspires to help you. Now, I will say, if um, similar to how the journalist or the editor of the newspaper would edit a soundbite or, Mm -hmm. you know, just a quote, I imagine if that if that if if uh, I imagine if I had access to the full sentence, it would go on to say you have to have full faith and conviction and belief in it, though, because as soon as you have doubt that creeps in. It metastasize and and starts to 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 go to to uh, it starts to make your path a bit more um, difficult or or forces you to go wayward, you know. Yeah. And that was something that I never had a problem with, but I understood over the years saying that quote to people. That most people needed to understand, like, there's a comma. You got to have full faith and conviction and belief yeah. in this uh, thing that you're sort of declaring and proclaiming to the universe. But that's how I got a show, believe it or not, man. Wow. Yeah. And that's how I got into DJing. When I first started, that was when they had the show names, as you yeah. mentioned, like Blueprint, Chocolate City, and whatnot. It, and it, Garth is still on right now. Garth is still on, but right. but most people don't even realize they took away the show names. That's what it is. Yes. And to the end of like 2007, maybe Why beginning of 2008. Sorry, I won't even the, lose your point. So yeah. yeah, no, I won't lose it. And the, with the only exception of the Heritage Show, which which is more than becomes eclectic because that's been around 30 plus yeah. years. But the thinking behind it was, obviously, people are going to gravitate to their favorite DJs, but they wanted, as opposed to any individual DJ's brand being developed or mm-hmm. show being developed, that the sound, no matter how different it may be from show to show, that it's considered KCRW. And, it, the, and, and the, the station being about the brand of KCRW as opposed to several different shows. That was the thinking behind it. Um, Again, people still going to gravitate towards who they like, but that was the whole idea behind it. Um, But when I started uh, my show, and I still record each of my shows because I listen back to every single show as like a form of of self-critique. Yeah, I I have a hard time. I don't do that all the time uh, when I DJ out because... I don't want to get discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> I totally get it, man. But yeah. also, but also, it's a little bit different for me because I actually am on air. Sure. So some of it is just like how I back announce and my presence on air and stuff like yeah. that. So, so um, when I first started my show, I named it something that 
I think exemplifies how I see the arts. And that is, um, you may reference to this w- with sports earlier. Um, in my opinion, sports is very much an art form. And the arts, generally speaking, have an incredible ability to bring people together. Yeah. But what I would say is the best form of facilitating this connection is far beyond like has to be music. And and my belief is one of the main reasons being is because music is like an extension of human emotion as opposed to some of the other art forms. It's the only form of the arts that you inherit and you inherently have a uh, have a foundation in. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? You can play some somebody um, some music and a note is off. You somehow inherently know that without right. being classically trained. However, let's take like culinary arts because that's very much an art form. You may have, let's say, a, por- a Persian dish and you may not like it. Well, you don't know if that's how it's supposed to taste or not. You don't mm-hmm. know that inherently. You don't know if it's a bad version of it. Or if this is actually how it's supposed to taste, you don't know. But with music, you know, and you know, it's in, you know, it's 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 intentional or it comes with it comes with a lack of training or something like that. And yeah. whoever recorded it to play it for you, they knew it. That's the it's the only art form you can say that about is yeah. truly a, a form of human extension. And so I've always thought about because obviously listen to KCRW, I'm attracted to things that are different enough familiar. That's something that I that I've known about myself from we age of all if something was different than what i'm accustomed to or used to like i gravitate towards it i want want to learn about it i want to see it i want to touch it i want to experience it you seem you're i mean i'm not it's not i'm not going to throw out a number about your age but you just seem wise beyond your years yet you seem to have a connection to the youth culture as well and Mm -hmm. sort of this interesting mix Mm. and that's what's so interesting like i want to end by but just how would you describe your musical sensibility well well this well this is what i was going to continue to say about the name of the show yes so you know half of the music i love i couldn't tell you what the hell they're saying they're speaking another Mm. language but it doesn't matter it speaks to me in a way that i don't have to understand in a traditional form there's so many shows, way like pre-KCRW, I would go to where there's different people, sexual orientation and from different countries and things like that. And so I just always thought about music being as though we're all from Pangea. Pangea being the supercontinent sure. before it broke up. Mm-hmm. Before, because the only borders that really exist in nature are land and water, you know. America doesn't exist in nature. Brazil doesn't exist in nature. So I've always thought of it as like Pangean, uh, like us being Pangeans. And so that was what I called my show, Pangea. Hmm. And from the get-go, I can't think of any, at least during my time slot, I can't think of any show where I haven't said, typically during my first introduction and in, 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 um, a, a moment where I'm vocally present on air, is this is a trip around the globe in search of the ever-elusive uh, the one thing that brings us all together, the ever elusive perfect groove. That's the whole concept and idea behind my show. 
Hmm. I call it Pangea. And even though the show names were taken away like 10 years ago, I make copies of my shows. I still write on there Pangea with the date, yeah. with the disc number and stuff. Yeah. I, I, I was a drummer. And, you know, I guess you can compare the drums to the heartbeat. And I, I mean, I still really respond to, I, I can't stand snare hi-hat. It's just so boring and conventional to me. And you can do so much more with it than that. You know, the toms and interesting patterns with the floor tom and the, and the kick. And I mean, sure, use the snare, but use it in a way that's so unconventional. And I was always responding to... Seagull Ross, and I, I have no idea what they're saying. Obviously, I mean, it was said that they actually were making up their own language in the first like record or two. Um, so I really can connect with what you're saying. And it's just, you know, Jeff Buckley, I never, a lot of times I never knew what he was saying. And even like the, the Edith Piaf cover that he did, I'm suddenly forgetting the name of it, but, you know, obviously he's speaking in French. And I think you're proving the point that you don't have to know what they're saying. And that's what's so beautiful about, you know, obviously I think chanting and drums were the first instruments or sounds because obviously you didn't need a violin. You could just sing and hum. Why? Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, the voice being the first instrument. And I know? guess I was just saying drums in the sense that probably people got sticks and just, you know, started making beats that way or maybe even like smacked their thighs and created rhythm that way. For sure. So for between sure. those two things, those were the two first instrumentations, I guess, created. And um, yeah, I think in a weird way, the name of your show and what you just said goes back to the core of what humans are, you know, connected with at its core. It's the sound of voice and it's the sound of the beat. And and I think a big part of that being is when we first actually become, um, you know, irrespective of your belief of when life starts and whatnot, when, whenever we become an entity, in some form or fashion in the belly, what do we hear? Our mm. mother's heartbeat. Yeah. You know? Like, that's the first sound that we hear and that we recognize. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think there's so much more depth and um, curiosity and interesting things going on outside of our cell phones. And... You know, conversation, being an artist, a DJ, a musician, asking questions. I mean, that's, I mean, those are the things that we were taught in elementary school. And hopefully our parents taught us those things to keep asking questions. And it's not about complaining. It's just not taking things at face value and wondering if there's something a little deeper going on than what we're being told. And that's not, you know being confrontational if it's obviously done in a respectful way it's 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 to me being smart and intelligent and and how we should live 
And I think it's totally um, appropriate and okay uh, for one to have beliefs. Um, and personally, I can tell you, I'm a very principled man, but I also navigate the world with a level of understanding of not knowing everything sure. and also being okay and open to that, um, especially when it comes from the perspective of someone's lived experience. You know, I, I'm not that person. I haven't like lived that experience. Well, and we live in a world now where everybody seems to feel like they need to be a know-it-all. And that's just so unnecessary. And, you know, another thing that social media has done um, to the great detriment of our socialization is um, created a lot of like false prophets. Hmm. People that feel wow. like, yeah, they, yeah they, they feel like they're experts in things. Oh, and yeah. so there's just so much paternalistic engagement like, oh, you should do this or you should do that. It's like, no, why don't you actually have a discussion with this person yeah how much do you actually know have has that ever happened to you do you you know it's just like these people have these um they they speak from a place of confidence of knowledge that had that has no basis of foundation you know (laughs) i I agree with everything you're saying um well aaron bird you can be found on twitter instagram at it's a bird but bird is spelled B-Y-R-D. You got it. Um, KCRW, the show is Thursdays, 12. It's, it's live Thursday nights, midnight to 3. Right. And as I mentioned earlier. It's streamed anytime. Yeah, don't worry about it. I'd be asleep too if I didn't have a show at that time. But you can you can, you can can stream it 24-7. Um, KCRW.com. At KCRW.com or the mobile app. We have an Android and iPhone app. So you can literally listen at any time. And then um, if you're, like, is there specific places in LA that you have a residency or you DJ around town or because I I think your style of music and your ear is worth listening to. So could people hear you somewhere? Thank you. Um, No, I I gave up my residency residencies actually, though I was just asked and accepted uh, to be the first guest for uh, first Fridays at the natural history museum. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that's happening, um, I, I want to say off the top of my head, that first Friday in March. is I'm pretty sure it's March 1st, as a matter okay. of fact. Um, so I'll be there at the Natural History Museum. Easy to find tickets um, through the website. You'll probably be hearing some advertisement on the station closer to the date. And KCRW um, during the summer always has these events, and I'm sure you're going to be DJing some of them. I'm usually a big part of Like the, at the Hammer. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, we started a series, which has now become a series. We didn't know at the time, but it was so highly, so successful. But Garth and I, we actually spent together at the um, um, California African American yeah. uh, Museum, which is a really fun gig. We love doing um, Chinatown. We're, we're right. all around during the summer, so uh, you'll probably be hearing or seeing that. And 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 I typically will post on my social media outlets about that as well. But in addition to KCRW, whether or not I should really advertise this, I program for a radio station that a hotel in L.A. has started as well. And that radio station is just an online station. And the station itself is called Nomad Radio. Unfortunately, someone took that domain name. Yeah, so okay. so it's nomad-radio.com. Okay. 
and that's virtually i'm gonna check it out tomorrow yeah it's virtually music 24 7 on there and as opposed to a typical radio station the programming is is similar to kcrw in the sense that it's a really wide wide range and also um kcrw programming um, compared to like a clear channel or some other Mm -hmm. commercial station they may have a clear channel station may have upwards of like two to three hundred songs that they can play from any one day which i'm sure will probably be quite surprising to hear to a lot of people because it sounds like it's only the rotation of the same six to eight songs all day right whereas to kcrw our only limitation basically are um rules um uh, that have been set as a standard by fcc and um our access to a recording that's literally those are our two limitations essentially and it's similar to that for Nomad Radio, but to give you a bit of a psychosis into the owner um, and the general vibe of the hotel, it's a private hotel. But um, his exact quote was um, in terms of the programming is, um, I want you to play cool music that people want to fuck to and smoke weed to. <laughs> so I was like, well, first of all, not only am I your guy. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm definitely the right guy for the gig. But I wish that was the instructions for every single gig I, I had. Know, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. God, I think it's so fucking confusing and all over the place. And it's so much more limiting, which is why there's several of us DJs at KCRW that are actually like DJs out and about at clubs and parties and yeah. things like that. And that's one thing we really love about having that platform. You don't have to have people or make people dance for like, you know, three, four hours at a time. You can really spread your wings and yeah. show a level of eclecticism and range in your taste in the in a format of radio because that's not what you're expected to do. Right. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, radio um, um, nomad hyphen radio dot com is another place where you're help. You're you'll hear you'll hear. Sorry. Right. You'll hear programming. I haven't talked this long. I know, in a long, it's a long time. Fucking talk. <laughs> <laughs> you'll hear you'll you'll hear some overlapping of concentric circles with the programming, but it's quite it's it's actually quite distinctly different from my radio show. Yeah, uh, which is also pretty fun for me too as well. So that's that's a form and access of uh, um, a, a way that you can you can access my taste in music. Cool. Uh, again, twenty four seven outside of the range of the weekly three hour show. Cool. Um, Aaron, you're the real freaking deal. <laughs> Seriously, I, it's funny. My mom, I'm from Ohio. That's and, where my family's from. My dad's side. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. so weird. Yeah, yeah. Just outside Cleveland. Um, oh, that, that's right. I told you about the calves in mm-hmm. Cleveland. So, um, my mom said something to me interesting. You know, I think people from Ohio, my mom specifically, they have this image of Los... I'm going to end the show, I promise. They have this image of people from L.A. being this certain thing. And that's why I sort of pick on the media, too. Like, you know, people believe what they see in the movies. And my mom is guilty of that, as anybody, like, from the Midwest. So, you know, there's this image that she would have of people from L.A. being a certain way. And I think one of them is probably not being you know, as, as intelligent or well-spoken as people, I don't know, in the Midwest or the East Coast or wherever. It doesn't matter. But, and it's not because of her experience. It's because of exposure exposure through a often film, TV. So the thing that she told me, of course she listens to the interviews, is she's like, 
wow, I, I, because a lot of the people I've interviewed are either from LA or obviously have lived out here for a long time. Wow. I can't believe how in, her image of LA has been like thrown out the door because of how intelligent and articulate people have been and well-spoken. Well, you are going to, I mean, she's an English major or she got her master's in English. So I'm positive she's going to, I mean, I'm not doing it for my mother, but I know she's going to be blown away at how articulate and intelligent, well-spoken, thoughtful. These are all words that are, I, I know she's going to be saying. And, and of course, I'm saying them because I feel the same way. Um, well, thank you. And I aim to please moms. So Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, no, and, and I, I was saying your mom's defense, like she she is one of millions of victims of the misrepresentation of yeah, LA, you know, totally. but I, you know, I get it. It's the entertainment capital of the world. Um, so most it, it, I've told people cause I've done a ton of traveling. I've been to 33 different countries now, okay. probably quad, probably triple that number in cities. And I came back from, I think my first like extent of doing quite a bit of traveling, realizing LA is one of the most unique places in the world. And that's one of the reasons why, because it's, it's one of those places. It's a major city. So therefore a lot of people know of it, but it's it's the, it seems to be the one place in the world where everybody knows it without knowing it. And the bulk of their education, their access to the city is through film, television, and music. Yeah. I'm like thinking three's company or something. Really? Like seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a big misrepresentation and growing up here, you meet people that come from elsewhere and I can't tell you how many times I've met somebody from Detroit, Chicago. It, It happens a lot with New Yorkers that, they're surprised that I'm from LA. They often think I'm from wherever they're from. And I'm like, how often do you actually meet somebody who's born and raised here? Yeah. I've, in my experience with all that traveling, both domestically and internationally, if you're from a city, city people are pretty similar, no matter where you're from. Right. But because LA has this weird dichotomy of people um, having such strong, um, almost calcified beliefs of who, what LA is, who LA people are, that they really come with this in psychology is called a confirmation bias. Hmm. So as soon as, so, you know, what's a stereotype of like everybody's flaky, right? So, uh, so as soon as they meet one person that is flaky, when they've already believed that to be true, it has confirmed their bias. And they jump all over. And so they see everybody's flaky from LA. With my traveling, I could tell you unequivocally, People being flaky, assholes, dumb, miseducated, hmm. racist, dicks. Sorry, mom. Yeah. That does not know gender or geography. That shit exists everywhere. Yes. It exists everywhere. The difference being, it's a this is a whole nother topic. Yeah, I know. But um, but but one of the biggest differences between LA and some other places where people may have certain beliefs is Part of the reason why um, it, it is able to that those beliefs are able to sort of persist in a way that it doesn't in other places is twofold. There's no other places in entertainment capital. So people are constantly being inundated with right. versions of it, exaggerated, hyperbolic versions of it and whatnot. And also, this is the other topic that I was going to refer to. There's a whole nother show. 
my, I had a minor in college and it was um, public policy with the emphasis in urban planning. L.A. is the first city to adopt what has now become the prime way to design a modern city, which is being polynucleated. So you have you still have the main sort of center of the city downtown. Yeah. Um, but as opposed to older cities, Paris, New York, Tokyo's and things mm-hmm. like that, where you have the main center and then in slowly larger concentric circles or all the residences. So no matter where you come from, your level of income or housing, everybody's forced to interact with one another because they're all going to hmm. downtown yeah. to work, get groceries and things like that. L.A. saw that in the deficiencies in having a city defined that way from an economic perspective. Maybe not from a social or cultural perspective, but they saw it from an economic perspective. It said, okay, well, we'll do that and we'll have all these smaller little cities connected by trains. In the 30s and 40s, L.A. had the best mass transportation in the country, some said the world, believe it or not. What happened, partially due to the efforts by the Ford family and foundation and company, they bought up all of the railways and started putting freeways. And part of the calculus behind it was um, Ford, in his genius, wanted to encourage, he wanted to eventually get to a point where everybody was driving. Yeah. Um, so at the time, he started with trucks and he started levying, he basically bought up the railways, started levying a heavy tax for goods and services to be transported on the railways to encourage these companies that were transporting the goods and services to buy trucks. Once enough of these companies bought trucks, he had enough capital to create cars cheaper so more people could buy cars. Wow. And worked out some level of partnership negotiation with the city of Los Angeles to basically replace most of the freeways we have used to be railways where the freeways are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that's how it became the city that we now know it to be. And the reason why I present this. This urban layout is because when you go to like a place like New York. People no matter where they're from to a certain extent, all kind of have to deal with the same thing. And right. so there is a collective sort of ubiquitous level of, of fraternity and pride for the city um, because they're all interacting and going to the same places and things like that. You don't have that in LA, which is one of the main reasons why if you think of one thing or something to describe what sort of unifies the city of Los Angeles, in comparison to many other cities that would have several other things, it's pretty much the Lakers and the Dodgers. It's the <laughs> yes. sports teams. Yeah. No matter where you live or where you're from, yeah. you from, you, you, you feel a part of these franchises. Um, and notice he didn't say the Clippers. <laughs> the who? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so anyway, the part of the reason why these, um, Confirmation biases have had a, a level to persist is because when people come here and people say things, we don't really care. There, there isn't a strong like identity for a lot of Angelinos right. to say like, this is my city the way you hear from other cities, yeah. you know? So you have that coupled with this other fact. This is what I believe. 
when you think about the idea of the new world, right? Uh-huh. It's essentially the Americas. Well, before Lewis and Clark made their expedition, um, obviously people lived in this part of the country and the world. But as far as the rest of the world understood and most of, uh, you know, Americans at that point, they knew something was west of Ohio. They just didn't know how much and what it was. And a lot of people who who made that trek west, they either die or they never went back to tell others because they were like, yo, we got all this land. We're cool. We're chilling here. So until Lewis and Clark made their successful expedition. This became the new world of the new world and literally the last frontier. You think about the people that made the decision to come and settle this land. They were unbelievably progressive type of dreamers, crazy to a certain extent, and sought sought out in what I think could be described in a selfish way, and I know that has a negative connotation, but I don't I'm not stating as such, to better themselves. Right. And so when people have a criticism about our city in comparison to other people from other cities, we we allow it to persist because we don't care. Right. Like we're fo- focused on improving ourselves, doing our thing. We're not wor- we're not worried about this association or belief that someone has about our city. So yeah. these things these things have been allowed to metastasize and persist like over the years because of those two main reasons: the way the city is designed and the general energy yeah. that has persisted over the generations and years and years and years of the foundation of what we now call Los Angeles. Wow. I feel like I just went to UCLA and studied the history of Los Angeles. (laughs) Um, Wow. Well, Aaron, um, it's been a a sheer joy to talk to you for the last nine hours. Do you realize it's actually five in the morning now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really appreciate you talking to me. You've proven my point about the power of conversation. Um, It's a powerful, powerful, fulfilling nourishing enriching way to grow and learn and i appreciate it well thank you for your kind words welcoming me and deeming me worthy to be a part of this conversation in your podcast and thank you for having a po- podcast where you're encouraging these conversations yeah, you know sure yeah yeah you know otherwise you'd be a hypocrite <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah you're doing something about it trying trying yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. no you're not trying you're doing you're it you're doing it you're doing it yeah, yeah. so thank you well, you're welcome. And um, thanks for all the listeners that have listened and um, appreciate the time. And um, yeah, have a great night. Thank you.